As I said, we're going into uh, our final Second Kings sermon today. So you can flip over now to Second Kings 21 as we set the stage for uh, what will be happening next week. I'm actually going to preach that text we just read, but over in Matthew next week, helping us see all the attributes um, of Jesus. I think it still needs to go up more. Um, so in Second Kings chapter 23, last week, whenever we were looking at Josiah, um, jo- Chris was talking to us about who Josiah was. He said that Josiah might be the greatest king ever. And to illustrate this, Chris said that um, he related it to the NBA. And he said, since David was kind of the Michael Jordan of the kings of Israel and that Josiah was the LeBron of the king of Israel. And to conclude, to conclude his sermon, he said that, um, that Josiah was likely the best of all the kings, that LeBron must be, since Josiah was the best of all the kings of Israel, that LeBron must be the goat of the NBA. So Chris really wants LeBron to be the greatest of ever of the NBA. Now, we all know this is crazy, that Michael Jordan is actually the best ever in the NBA. And to know uh, the true goat of Israel outside of Jesus, of course, Jesus is actually the greatest of all time of all the kings, um, then what we should do is, if he wants, really wants Josiah to be the best, because he wants LeBron to be the best, but it's really David who is the best, what we should do is do something obvious. Look at their children. Look at their children. When you look at who their children are, then we know who's the greatest of all of Israel. Um, if you go to, uh, that's what we're going to be looking at today. We look at Josiah's children, um, and in this sermon, we're going to see Josiah's children are all terrible. But if you go over to David's children, so, well, I know Solomon sure had some problems. We know that, that he had a lot of problems. But um, outside of his problems, he built the temple. He was the wisest man that ever lived, and he wrote Holy Scripture. So whenever you look at the children, then you know, okay, that king must have been the greatest because his children were actually good too. And so that way we know that... Um, David was clearly the greatest king of all times of Israel. Therefore, Michael Jordan's the best in the NBA. I just want to make sure that we that we knew that uh, before we went in. So anyway, back to the sermon. Um, Now, um, as we referenced in the intro, we're going to look at uh, Josiah's sons today. So uh, if you go over to Second Kings, chapter 23, starting in verse 31, uh, today, the plan of what we're going to be looking at whenever we're looking at the scriptures is this. Um, as, as Second Kings ends, um, one writer said uh, this, the way that Second Kings ends is that uh, the writer doesn't want to spend much time here. Uh, if you have a really hairy leg and you have a Band-Aid on it, you have two ways to take off the Band-Aid. You can just rip it right off and get it over with, or you can take it off as painfully slowly as possible. And the writer says that the way the writer wants to end Second Kings is just by ripping the Band-Aid off as fast as possible. Meaning he's just trying to zoom through these four, last four kings as fast as possible just to get it over with. Because Second Kings, uh, as it ends, is not that great. It's about the fall of Israel and Judah, so it's not that great. And so as we're looking at it today, here's the plan of how we're going to go through this last bit of text. Starting in uh, 2 Kings 23, 31 all the way to the end of the text. There's four kings. We're going to look at these four evil kings. One, two, three, four. Um, And as we look at the four evil kings, I'm just going to 
make some applications from, from their, their pretty pitiful lives. And then after we do that, um, I'm going to point us to a better king and then give us some hope in the gospel. So that's the plan. Look at these four kings uh, in a row. As we look at those four kings, make some, point, uh, some applications from each one of them. And then as we uh, look at those applications, it'll help hopefully point us to our better king. So uh, that's the plan. Now, these four kings that we're going to look at, they're nothing to write home about. Uh, they're not necessarily good at all. But if you want to go ahead and see who they are, I'm going to point you to those texts right now. So the first one is if you look at Second Kings chapter 23, verse 31, you'll see the first king. And you can see his name right there is Jehoahaz. That's king number one. The second king is if you go to Second Kings chapter 23, verse 36, you'll see his name right there, Jehoiakim. If you go to Second Kings chapter 24, verse 8, you'll see the next one, which is a big, huge difference, Jehoiakim. So the Jehoiakim is, has the M, Jehoiakim is the third king. Uh, not much difference besides name. And then the fourth king, if you go over to Second Kings 24, verse 8. 18, you'll see Zedekiah. Those are the four kings. Three of them are Josiah's sons. One of them is Josiah's grandson. So that's, that's who they are. They're all related to, to Josiah. Um, all four of them are bad. All four of them are terrible. If you add up all of their kingships together, it's about 22 and a half years. Um, and they, they go and actually complete the same order. So the first one, Jehoahaz rules for six months. And then the second one, Jehoiakim, rules for 11 years. And then the third one, Jehoiakim, rules for six months. And then Zedekiah, the last one, rules for 11 years. So six months, then 11 years, six months, then 11 years. And that's, that's, the, that's the way it ends. And then we're going to look at those four. And then we'll go to the epilogue, which is the very last little section in 2 Kings 25. So king number one, if you go to... Uh, Second Kings 23, verse 31, we're going to read about king number one. This is Josiah's son. So look at verse 31. Jehoahaz was 23 years old, 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. So three months, that's it. His mother's name was Hamatul, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil. And it's going to say this on all four. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah at the hand of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he laid on the land of a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Elikim, the son of Josiah, uh, king in his place. So as soon as Jehoahaz ruled for three months, uh, Pharaoh Necho didn't like him. So he replaced him with another guy whose name was um, Elikim, but they're going to change his name from Elikim to Jehoiakim. That's the second king. More on him later. Let's stay on Jehoahaz. And then it says, but he took Jehoahaz away and he came to Egypt and died there. That was verse 34, verse 35. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money to according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted silver and the gold of the people of the land and from everyone, according to his assessment, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Boom. That's it. That's all we have about Jehoahaz. Not very much. Three month reign. He reigned during the year of 609 BC. Uh, his father, 
was jo- Josiah. And so here we have an interesting thing where Josiah, who was one of the greatest kings ever of Israel, but not better than David, but one of the greatest kings better of Israel. Whenever we see that, we see that he has these three evil sons. Now, how is that possible? Who's jo- how is it possible that Josiah, who's one of the greatest kings ever, has these children that are terrible? The reason why is because every one of us have an inclination towards sin. Every single one of us. Now, I don't kn- think that it necessarily means that Josiah was a poor father. He could have been a great father. But every child, um, whether they, however they're raised, has their own decision whether they want to follow the Lord. But he did what was evil into the sight of the Lord, Jehovah has, despite having a godly father like um, Josiah. Uh, he chose not to be like his, son, his dad, and he did what was evil. We don't have much written for, from him, as I said. But what can we learn from him? I think this is what we can learn from having Jehovah has in front of us. This is what I think we can learn. That for all of us who have children, um, so think about Josiah and think about these children that he has. All of us who have Josiah, one of the things that we can surely do is take this, um, the Shema and, and, and ingrain it in our head and want to live it out. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9. It says, Hero Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. And here it is. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So as we read that, we should realize as we look at this tragedy of all tragedy, tragedies of Jehoahaz, that we as parents, um, like Josiah, should desire to not have our kids go the way of Jehoahaz, but instead um, have them be raised in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. As it says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, I think this is one, maybe one of the best things we can learn from the life of Jehoahaz, which is a tragedy life as a king. It says in Ephesians chapter six, verse four, fathers. Now, when you hear fathers there, uh, because the father is the head of the household, we don't think we don't need to think that excludes wives. Of course, it includes mothers as well. But so fathers, but really fathers and mothers. Then it says, fathers, um, do not provoke your children to anger, but and this is the most important: bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. And so as we look at this tragedy of Jehoahaz, all you who are parents out there, um, don't let your child go the way of Jehoahaz. Raise them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Obey the Shema to teach your children diligently so that they don't walk away from the Lord. I think that's all that we can learn from the tragedy of the three-month reign of Jehoahaz. He didn't live very long. Well, as it says, Pharaoh Necho didn't want Jehoahaz to rule, and so he takes him away and he has him killed and he puts Eliakim, Eliakim uh, in his place. Eliakim was, was uh, Jehoahaz's brother. And so he's second, but then they change his name to Jehoiakim with an M. So that's where we are now in second Kings chapter 23, verse 36. And so let's read about him. There's, there's a lot kind of on him. He ruled for 11 years, way, way longer than his brother. So it says in verse 36, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebediah, the daughter of Pedidiah of Rumah. 
And he did what was evil. Another same thing inside the Lord, according to all his fathers had done. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. So this is during the days of Daniel as well. If you want to do some some side reading on this part uh, this week, go to the book of Daniel and read through it. It says, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him the, the bands of the Chaldeans and the bands of the Syrians and the bands of the Moabites and the bands of the Ammonites. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant and the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of all the Lord to remove them out of his sight. So this is where the Lord finally loses his patience with Judah and he sends other nations who are pagans to come and end Judah. I mean, this is amazing how the Lord is forbearing and forbearing and forbearing. But the writer wants us to know that those other nations weren't the thing that did it. Instead, it was the, the, the patience of the Lord had finally run out because of Judah being so unbelievably sinful. And then it says, surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of their sight. Verse three and verse four. And also for the innocent blood that he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers and Jehoiachin third reigned in his place. Now Jehoiachin was his son, but he doesn't get to reign very long. And the king of Egypt did not come again out of this land for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king uh, of Egypt from the book of brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. So that's king number two, Jehoiakim. So I want to talk about Jehoiakim and his his reign again is from second Kings chapter 23, verse 36 down to second uh, Kings 24, verse seven. So one writer, as he's talking about king number two, Jehoiakim says this, that he was anti-Yahweh to the core. That's what Dale Davis says. He was anti-Yahweh to the core. I mean, that is not a good thing to have said of you at all. He reigned for 11 years, uh, and he's basically just a puppet of Nebuchadnezzar. We can see in, in chapter 24, verse 1, who comes in. And he starts this new tax prog- program to pay tribute over to Egypt. Uh, and he's just a Jehoiakim. It's just a terrible, terrible person. Uh, And then uh, as this is going on, God is going to send a prophet to him to talk to him about what's going on. You can see this prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 11 through 17. So I'm going to read this prophecy that Jeremiah comes and prophesies to Jehoiakim at the time. This is Jeremiah 22 11 through 17. This is the prophecy that's made against him. If you want to turn over to Jeremiah 22, you can. Jeremiah 22, 11 through 17. Or you can just listen. I'm going to read it to you. But this is what the Bible says. Um, in verse 11, it says, For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom. Now, in this text, it says Shalom. But Shalom, according to commentators, because there is a fourth son of Josiah named Shalom, but it's probably not the fourth side because he never reigned. So this Shalom here in 2211 is actually this second king, Jehoiakim. That's just backstory. You don't really need to know. But this Shalom is Jehoiakim. King number two from second Kings 2336. It says this. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the king of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah, his father, and went away from his place place. Um, he shall return here no more, but in his place where 
they have carried him captive, he shall die and he shall never be seen again in this land. Woe to him, here it is, who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. So he built these huge houses for himself. And as he did it, the rest of the people are languishing. The rest of the people are in need. And he just builds his house up to be really big. He doesn't help the people. And the people he gets to build his house, he doesn't even pay them. And then it keeps going. Verse 14, who says, I'll build for myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, um, who cuts out windows for it, paneling with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? Did you not, did, did not your father eat and drink and do right justice and righteousness? So Josiah was good, but you're bad. You're no Josiah, Jehoiah, Jehoiah Kim, not Jehoiah Kim. And then it says this, um, he judged the cause of the poor and needy then and it was well is this is not this to me to know me declares the lord but you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain for shedding of innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence so this is what it tells to us about him now uh he built a huge palace for himself while his people suffered he refused to pay builders that built his building so this is what's going on with king number two Jehoiakim. He was not a good king at all. Um, he was, uh, he was the king, but he was, he was a terrible king. Uh, our king Jesus would never treat his people this way, but this king Jehoiakim oppresses his people, builds up big palaces for himself, oppresses them by not helping them. And then doesn't even pay the people that build his house. This is a, uh, this is a terrible God. Jeremiah also writes of him later in Jeremiah 36. He says, so they went to the court uh, to the king, having put the scrolls in the chamber of Elashim of the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. And the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elashim of the secretary. And Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. And it was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house and was there. There was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. So you can kind of set the scene here. So the king's sitting here and he calls Jehudi. He's like, hey, Jehudi, go get that. Uh, go get that scroll. I remember they used to read it to Josiah. Get that scroll and come read it to me. And he's just sitting there as the scroll is being read to him. Now, we've already heard he builds up this huge palace. And as he builds up this huge palace uh, before him, as he has this huge palace, uh, everybody's oppressed. He doesn't pay the people. And now he's like, later on in Jeremiah 36, they're, they're reading. He's like, Jehudi, read me the stuff. And as he's reading the scrolls to him, this is what he does. Listen to how he does. So we already heard one thing. He oppresses people and he doesn't pay people. Here's the second thing that's really terrible. This is what it says. This is Jeremiah 36, 23. It says, as Jehudi, Hudi read the scrolls, read columns, three or four columns, the king. Now, remember, they didn't have like multiple Bibles all over the place. They had they had what they had. They had the scrolls and that was it. That's how they read the word. Not a huge literate society, not Bibles at every life way. Uh, and so this was their scriptures here. So as Jehudi reads the scriptures to the king, this is what he does. It says the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot. Until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that it was in the fire pot. So we have two awful things about this king. One, he oppresses people while he makes this huge house. And he doesn't pay the people that build his house. And he hates the word of God so much that he burns it as Jehudi reads it to him. And it says this. 
Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all of these words was afraid. No one even trembled as the king burnt the scrolls of the word of God. Nor did they tear their garments. This is what Josiah did when he, when he hadn't heard the word, when somebody read it to him. He tore his garments and he repented. And he goes, oh, we haven't been listening to the word. The word's being read to us. The Lord is using his word to change our hearts. What, what did Jehoiakim do? Cut it and threw it in the fire. This is a, a wicked heart that does not have a heart towards hearing the word of God. Even when Elnathan and Delania and Gamaria urged the king not to burn the scroll, he wouldn't listen to them. He burned the scrolls anyway. And it says, And the king commanded Jehemiel, the king's son, and Syria, the king of Israel, and Shalimi, the kings of Abedi, and Baruch, the secretary. Uh, but the Lord hid them. So this is what's going on. Here we see the king rejects the word of God. He oppresses people and he rejects the word of God. Now, here's the question I have for you. When you hear the story of Jehoiakim being read the scrolls by Jehudi, where when we hear the word of God, it's supposed to do something to our heart. It's supposed to soften us and it's supposed to transform us. When you hear the story of how Jehoiakim, as the scrolls are being read to him, instead of hearing it, tearing his garments, repenting and say, everybody needs to change and listen to this. Instead, cutting it off the scrolls and throwing it in the fire. When you hear this being read to you, how does that make you feel? How does it make you feel to know that that's what the king did with the word of God? That that's the way he regarded the word. When you hear it, what happened, I'm assuming you think that his view of the word of God is just terrible. Like this king has a terrible view of the word of God. When I hear that that's what he did, it makes me sick to my stomach. Why would you do that? If that's the only word they had, and when it's heard, read to you, you care so little about God, you care so little about his word that you literally cut it off with a knife and throw it to the fire. How can you disregard the word that much, king? It makes me feel terrible. Well, I would say this, and don't, hear, don't, don't miss this. I would say this. In the same way that the king cuts the scroll off and throws it in the fire because he doesn't care about the word of God. In the same way, daily neglect of me and of you, daily neglect of being in the Bible every single day and reading it. If we neglect to let our hearts go into the word and read it every day, it's akin to Jehoiakim cutting off the scroll and throwing it into the fire. If we just neglect the word, how's it any different? It's the exact same. If we don't find that this is the word of God that gives us life every single day and we don't come to it every day and read it and and let it transform us, then how are we any different than him? Sure, we don't burn the pages, but it's functionally the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. If we don't get in the word every day, we must be people of the word or else we're just like Jehoiakim. So what can we learn from him? Two things. One, generosity. Two, love the word of God. Generosity. All the things, uh, he built palaces for himself. He oppressed people. He didn't give with generous hearts to help people around him. He just built his house up bigger and bigger. And then he didn't even pay people. So the first thing we can read is this. All the things that you and I have are from the Lord. Every drop of money that you ever get. It's not like... As you get 100%, 10% of God and 90% is for whatever I want to do. 10% you give back to God, but the 90% that you still live on, that's still God's. 
you're still supposed to honor and glorify God with that as well. And with that, we are commanded by God to live as generous, glad-hearted people to help people. We have expenses, of course. You got to feed your family. You got to pay your rent. But as people of God, we need to be generous. We don't need to oppress people and build our palace bigger and not pay people. We should do the opposite of that. We, of all people, as who have been shown the un, most unbelievable generosity from Christ, should be generous people. We are to be unbelievably generous, so much so that we are willing to help all the outcasts, as James 1, 26 and following says, that we are to help the widows and the orphans. So who are the people around you that you know that need help, especially during COVID-19? There's all kinds of people right now that need help. Most of them are older. Most of them need for you to go to the grocery store and buy their groceries and not just bring them to them and, and let them reimburse you. You need to buy it for free. We've had people doing that for us during this, bringing us food. So who are the people that you can express generosity to and be like Jehoiakim? Number two that we learn from him is this. We must be people of the word. When Josiah heard the word, he rended his garments, he ripped his clothes and he repented. That's the sign of what they do. When he heard the word, Jehoiakim burned the word. He burned it. What are you going to do with God's scrolls? What are you going to do with God's scrolls? You have the word of God here. You literally can read God's word on your phone every day. You can have someone read God's word to you on your phone. What are you going to do with God's God's scrolls? Don't neglect the word daily. That's the second thing that we can learn from him. And that's King two. As I said, uh, as we're going through these kings, these kings aren't great guys. They're all terrible, but we have things that we can learn from them. King three, Jehoiachin, which is a huge difference. Actually, I think the CH is more like a Bach. So it's Jehoiachin and Jehoiakim. The, the K is a hard K and the CH is a, you know, get your loogie out. So Jehoiachin and verse 24, verse eight. There's only one, two people in the room, so I don't know if I'm funny or not. So hopefully these things are funny to you. I'm laughing here, um, but I've never preached to an empty room. So here we go. Jehoiachin. So Second uh, Kings 24, verse 8. King 3, Jehoiachin. He reigned three months. So we're back to the pattern of three months, 11 years, Je- three months, 11 years. He reigned three months in 597 BC. I hope you can hear me. If you can hear me, then text us and let us know. Cause I have no clue if you can hear me. Um, anyway, 24 verse eight, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became King. Now this, this is the only of these four Kings we're looking at. That is a grandson. The other out of all four, they're all sons of Josiah. This is the grandson of Josiah and notice this age. He takes, uh, he, he takes his kingship at verse 18. Jehoiakim was 18 years old, Josiah's grandson, when he became king and he reigned three months. Have you ever been king at 18? No, I haven't. But can you imagine being king at 18? Uh, it probably should only last three months. But this guy, he lasted three months, three months, not very long to be king. And this is what it says. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was, here it is, evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Um, And at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem and the city was besieged. So here we have under his three months time, 
the whole city gets besieged. So he didn't rule very long, but in the small time that he ruled, Nebuchadnezzar said, oh, there's an 18 year old ruling. I guess I'll go siege the city now. Uh, And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were being besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Jehoiachin, sorry, Jehoiachin, king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon himself. That's what it says in 2412. Notice that Jehoiachin, the 18 year old, the king of Judah just gave himself up to the king of Babylon. He just, he just done give up as we would say in the South and his mother and his servants and his officials and the whole palace officials just gave up. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the uh, eighth year of his, of his reign uh, and Carried off all the treasures in the house of the Lord, all the treasures of the king house, and cut into pieces all the vessels of gold. So just ransacked all of their treasures, which Solomon of Israel had made, and the Lord had foretold. He carried away all of Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest of the people of the land. So it's all over for him right here. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. Now notice here, he doesn't kill him. He doesn't kill him. He reigned at 18, at age 18 for three months, but he doesn't kill him. He takes him off to Babylon. That's coming more on that later. The king's mother, the king's wives and his officials and the chief men of all the land took captive, took captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. All the men of valor, 7,000, the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for his uh, war and the king of Babylon made Mataaniah Jehoiachin's uncle king in his place. So this is another son of Josiah. So grandson of Josiah gets kicked out. Another one of his sons comes in, and he says he made him king in his place, and he changed his name to Zedekiah. That's King Four, who starts in twenty four eighteen. We're going to come back to Zedekiah, King Four, in a second, but I want to stay on King Three here, Jehoiachin. Three month reign. So here we go. King three, Jehoiachin, who's from 24, eight down to 24, 17. He doesn't ring long, as I said, just three months. And basically he's the guy that hands the entire kingdom over to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. We see that uh, in verse 12, when the king of Babylon came, Nebuchadnezzar, he just gave himself up. Now, uh, we should realize that there's a big difference here. Now, if you remember a few weeks back, whenever uh, David preached on Hezekiah, whenever there was oppression, what does Hezekiah do? Whenever the oppression comes, what does Hezekiah do? Do you remember? Yes, he prayed, Lord, help me, help me. He went to the Lord and he said, Lord, help me. And we talked about the, the massive, huge prayer of Hezekiah. What does Jehoiakim do? Babylon comes in, Nebuchadnezzar comes in. What does he do? Does he say, Lord, help me? Or does he say, oh, here you go. Here's the whole, here's the, here it is. I'm, it, he just gives it away. If you contrast what Jehoiachin, Jehoiakin does to Hezekiah, you'll see the missing element is that of prayer. No prayer whatsoever. 18 years old, does what is evil in the sight of the Lord and does nothing when it comes to prayer. Instead, he just sends off all the, the kingdom to Babylon. And then the second deportation happens where everybody goes to Babylon. So what can we learn about this short little three-month uh, reign of Jehoiachin? This is what we can learn. In difficult times, and really all times, of course, we should pray at all times. First Thessalonians 5, 18, 521. It's one of those two. 518 or 521. Um, that we should pray without ceasing. 
But in difficult times, what should we learn from Jehoiakim as opposed to Hezekiah? Turn to the Lord in prayer. That's what we can learn from the life of Jehoiakim. Turn to the Lord in prayer in difficult times. Can you think of a time at all where you've had a difficult time and you need to turn to the Lord in prayer? I would say right now what we're in is the height of that time. Look at God and watch what we, what he will do. We've learned from this coronavirus, COVID-19. One of the main things that we all need to do is turn to the Lord in prayer and see what he can do. What can we learn from Jehoiakim when you juxtapose it to uh, when you juxtapose it to Hezekiah, you look at the two, the two things, what's the main difference? Hezekiah prays, Jehoiakim does not. And that's what we can learn here. We need to learn to turn to God and pray like Hezekiah. And don't be a prayerless person like Jehoiakim. Just this past Friday, we saw, um, whenever we saw Rock Hill turn to God in prayer, one of our members, Heather, uh, was used by God to get close to probably a thousand people to come up to the hospital and see the Lord lead up, see the Lord uh, use her to get where we all go there. We're playing music and we're honking our horns and we're praying for the staff. And I mean, the Lord did something amazing this past Friday. Lots of people came out and prayed. And so we're waiting to see what will the Lord do during this time of being isolated from each other. We need to, uh, we need to pray. I'll say it this way. During this time of isolation, to where we have seemingly uh, more time on our hands. Should our prayer life uh, be dormant? Should our prayer life get worse? Or should our prayer life increase? It seems if there's any of those three options, which makes most sense during this time, our prayer life should increase during this time where we have more time. So during this time, we should be reminded of just how much we need the Lord. We literally can't do anything right now. We can't do anything without God. And so during this time, we should be praying like crazy. And this king reminds us during COVID-19, one of the main takeaways is that we are rendered absolutely helpless without the Lord's help. So that was what we learned from king number three. We should be people of prayer. Now it brings us to king number four, Zedekiah. Zedekiah 24, 18. Um, this is the one who's the uncle of King three, who's put in his place when he sends King three out. King four, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamotul, the son of uh, Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what it is. Guess what? He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. So this is literally where God finally really runs out of patience with Judah. Like so many prophets, so many prophets turn, 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 turn. And eventually God finally says no more. And you can see it in verse 20. For because the anger of the Lord had come to this point in Jerusalem and Judah. Here it is that he cast them out of his presence and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. This is, this is where we see that it's just over for, for God. God's patience had run out. And if we see there in 2420, he literally cast them out of his presence. We should never, ever let this come to this point. 
When the Lord is sending to us people over and over to lead us to repentance, or invite, your friends are coming to you and saying, I see this in your life change, we should, we should say yes. And then in 25, 1 and 2, it's the record of the Babylonian siege against Jerusalem, the total siege. And in the ninth year of the reign, in the 10th month, on the 10th day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came in with all his army against Jerusalem. And here it is, laid siege to it. They built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. Done. So that's the end. In 2 Chronicles 36, uh, chapter 36, verse 13, it tells us that Zedekiah refused to repent whenever he was confronted. His heart um, was very hard against returning to Yahweh. Zedekiah's terrible leadership even caused the priests uh, at this particular time to, to practice detestable practices of pagan nations all around him. So what can we learn from this particular king, Zedekiah? This is what we can learn. This, this last king, this is under this king's leadership is whenever God finally cast him completely out of his presence. This is, this is terrible leadership, absolutely ungodly leadership. So what can we learn? This is what we can learn from King Four, that there is a desperate need in every church for godly leadership, a desperate need for godly leadership, which means this is what you can do. If you're not a leader here at Remedy Church, this is what you can do. You're in one of two categories. You are a leader here or you're not. Um, if you're not a leader here at Remedy Church in any form or fashion, this is what you can do. You should pray for the leaders at Remedy Church. Pray for the elders, pray for the deacons, pray for all who do all kinds of things here. If you are a leader, then seek the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what we learn from this. Pray for the elders, pray for the deacons, pray for their hearts to be soft towards the Lord's leadings and for those that are in leadership, desire to have a soft heart towards God. Um, what these kings are missing out on, all of them, uh, and not enjoying is the great life of knowing and living for Jesus Christ. One, one guy who was a, a missionary wrote this, most men aren't satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose towards the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. Meaning all the, all the sin that the world invites you into is nothing compared to being on mission with God and finding joy and fulfilling God's eternal plans. This is the last thing he says. Listen to this. Don't miss this. This is what he says. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking in their own lives are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. I'll say it again. The men, and of course women, the people who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking in their lives are getting out of life the sweetest and most priceless rewards. Which means this, are you putting everything into Christ's undertaking in your life? That's where you're getting life's sweetest rewards. If you're not, then you're not getting it. Are you pursuing him with your entire life? Or is Christ just a mere addendum 
to your already happy life that you have. Without Christ, you would have a pretty happy life, but I'll just tack him on as an addendum to make sure I can go to heaven. I got a good life anyway, but why not have Jesus? Because then I can go to heaven too. Life's good. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not my life is great and Christ is the addendum so I can go to heaven. That is not Christianity. He must be everything you live your life for. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves or we surrender our entire lives to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. That's why we say, thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. I don't, I don't end my happy life, but whenever I become a Christian and everything's over. That's not what he says. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and terrible life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And then he says this, the most famous line he ever said, Bonhoeffer, that you probably heard of. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So Jesus is not an addendum, a tack on to our already happy life so that we can go to heaven. Instead, no, Jesus is our entire life now. Everything about us is formed around wanting to do what Christ calls us to do. And he's all, yes, a byproduct is I'll go to heaven with Jesus, but I, my life is not happy without him. I, I don't have happiness unless I'm in Christ. And so, that's the fourth thing that we can see. So let me make one big, broad, sweeping application based on all four kings. We look at all four of these kings, and here's what the big, broad application is this, is about our heart. What's ultimately wrong with all four of these kings is their heart. David was a man after God's own heart. David told Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4, when he became king and anointed him king, to walk before the Lord in faithfulness with all of his heart, with all of his soul. Asa, when it describes Asa in 1 Kings, it said that he had a heart completely devoted to the Lord. When it says, talks about Josiah, he said his heart was tender to the Lord. So if you put all those kings together, David had a, a, was a man after God's heart. Solomon was told to walk in faithfulness with all of his heart. Asa had a heart that was completely devoted to the Lord. Josiah had a heart that was tender towards the Lord. The thing that these four kings are missing compared to those four kings is that they did not have a soft heart. They did not have a soft heart before the sight of the Lord. So as Tony Marita commenting on this, he says this, as we read through all of the kings, first and second kings, the, the book, the writer, the Holy Spirit is asking us this question. Am I taking care of my heart? That's the question for you as you read through the kings. Are you taking care of your heart? That's what was wrong with these kings. They weren't doing heart work. Are we dealing with our pride? Are we dealing with our anger? Are we dealing with our lust? Are we dealing with the besetting sins in our life? Are we taking care of our heart? Proverbs four twenty three. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. The, the writer of the Proverbs tells us to keep your heart with all vigilance. We should be watching our heart with every single thing we can. For from our hearts flow the springs of life. 
Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Luke 6, 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasures of his heart produces evil. For as the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The Lord over and over and over and over is telling us. And what we learn from these four kings, we must do heart work. Proverbs 4, 23. Be vigilant on your heart work. We must watch our hearts. Tony Maria says, you were made to worship the living God of the Bible. If he isn't at the center of your life, then something else is at the center of your life. And that could be if Jesus is just the addendum to go to heaven and you're happy already. Happiness and comfort is your idol, not Jesus. Jesus is not your king. And so he says, you were made to worship the living God of the Bible. You were made to worship Christ. And if he's not at the center of your life, something else is. Everything other than Christ is a cheap substitute. So are you attending to your heart? Application question. How is your heart? Now that's, that's a penetrating question that at first blush you can look at it and say, uh, my heart's doing fine. You can't answer it that easily. Really looking at your heart and asking how your heart is doing does not happen that easy. It's a penetrating question. How is your heart? Do you pay attention to what your heart wants? What does your heart want? Watch your heart throughout the day. It tells you what it wants. In this moment, what does my heart want? Is it Jesus or that besetting sin? Is it Jesus or that lust? Is it Jesus or that pride? Is it Jesus or that thing? Watch your heart throughout the day. Always watch it. Now, the good news of the gospel is that when our heart wants other things, that's our cue. Repent right then in that moment. Lord, forgive me. Like Josiah, when the word was read to him, he repented. He said, forgive me. Don't be like Jehoiakim when he said, ah, forget the word, burn it. Watch your heart and repent immediately. Oh, I don't want that. Set my heart back on Christ. Watch your heart. What's going on in your heart? Do you pay attention to your heart's affections, not just daily, not just hourly, but minutely. Secondly, how's your heart? That's what we learned from watching these kings. Now, the epilogue. 25, uh, I don't have time to do it all, but the epilogue, it gets pretty bad. And then we get to 27. So the writer wants us to see one particular thing. So if you flip your page or two pages or whatever, go to chapter 25, verse 27. It brings us to the epilogue. As I said, here's my plan. I'm going to show you four kings. And as I show you those four kings, we're going to have applications from their horrific lives. And then I want to point you to a good king. In the epilogue, I think the writer is pointing us to a good king. And it's not who you think at first blush. Prima facie. It's not who we think it is prima facie. Look at verse 27 of chapter 25. The epilogue. The final little thing. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim. Remember him? He was 18 years old when he became king. He ruled three years. He just gave over the, the thing and they exiled him over to Babylon. And then notice what it says. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim king of Judah and the 12th month. So he's 55 years old now, still alive. He was replaced by the king of Babylon. But the king of Babylon doesn't replace kings. Who's the king of Babylon to replace kings? Nobody. God decides who's king. Here we are. Verse 27. In the 37th year of exile uh, of Jehoiakim, the king of Jerusalem, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil, that's that's a terrible name, by the way, evil Morodak, king of Babylon, 
in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. Let him out of prison. And then it says this. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments. Every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Now, there's a lot of controversy on this text. Um, He was, uh, as we look in the epilogue, he's about 55 years old. This is 37 years later. Jehoiakim had been a prisoner from 18 to 55 He had reigned for that short little three months. He's 55 years old now. And there's a lot of debate on whether this epilogue is good or this epilogue is bad. Uh, I wouldn't read too much into it that he's dining at the evil king's table. Uh, I wouldn't read too much into that. It could be good. There's debate. It's actually a good epilogue. It's actually a bad epilogue. Um, There's no Israel land-wise. It's all gone and they've been conquered. So... Here's one thing, though, that we can see. I just want to make sure we see this. The writer is pointing us to one thing that, uh, that I think is actually good. We can ask ourselves, is, is, is Jehoiakim a traitor now? Because he's, he's living with this guy. Is he a traitor? Is he a Joseph-like guy now? He's out of prison. And he's kind of like a Joseph guy. Or is he the antithesis of that? Is he, is he a traitor? Uh, there's good points on both sides of whether this is a good or a bad epilogue. But we should notice something together that's indisputable. It's indisputable because it's in the text. The writer is warning us to see something about God, not Jehoiakim. And I think that this is amazing because the writer is wanting us to make sure we hearken back to 2 Samuel 7 and don't forget the promises of God. And this little, this little writing right here at this end of 2 Kings is saying, hey, guess what, Israel? Guess what, everybody? God has not forgotten his promise. Look at the text with me. In verse 27, notice what it says. Jehoiakim, king of Judah. It doesn't just call him Jehoiakim, right? It could have just said, and the 37th year of the exile, Jehoiakim in the 12th month was, was allowed out. But that's not what the writer does. What does the writer call him? Jehoiakim, title, king of Judah. And then it says it again. Uh, evil Moroiakim, king, king of Babylon, graciously freed Jehoiakim, quote, king of Judah. So the writer uses Jehoiakim, king of Judah, twice in verse uh, 27. And this is without well, indisputable that it's there. Like we know we can debate on whether the epilogue is good or bad, but what we don't have to debate is the words King of Judah are used twice there. And the writer, as he's doing that is hearkening us all back. This is to try to show us this, that God is still going to keep his promise from second Samuel seven. I mean, they're in Babylon. The whole thing's been conquered. And yet the writer's saying, God's going to keep his promise that he made. Because the promise is, from the line of David, there will arise a king. And what does he call Jehoiakim? King of Judah. In other words, keep watching this lineage of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Because there is going to be a king that's going to come out of it. Yeah, we're in, we're in exile. Yeah, there's no land that we have. We don't know what's going to happen. But what we do know is we just called this Jehoiakim king of Judah. Second Samuel 7 promises that there will be from the line of David and now from the line of Jehoiakim, a real king that will come and set everything right. And so this writer is helping us see God is keeping his promise. He always keeps his promises. And here we see 
Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So as we finish 2 Kings, it sounds desperate on purpose. I mean, things are bad, really bad. It's not a happy ending. It's meant to fill us and make us have angst and desperation. The writer's wanting us to feel that, but it ends hopeful. By using the words king of Judah, it's meant to let us know that none of these kings are good. As you go through all of the kings of first and second kings, you should realize by reading it, there is no hope for a human king. All these kings leave me hopeless and we need a better king. That's what I read second kings. All these kings leave me thinking we need a better king. And here's the good news. We have one. And his name is Jesus. We have a better king. I'm hoping that you're all clapping at home right now and standing saying, praise the Lord. If you were in here, I feel like you would be doing that. But that makes me want to say, yes, Lord, we have a better king. We have one. Remember the terrible prophecy I told you in Jeremiah 22, verse 11 through 17. I said of the second king of Jehoiakim, there was a, there was a prophecy of Jeremiah 22, 11 through 17 that says, this is what it says about him. And it was just awful prophecy about how he built up his house and he oppressed people and it didn't even pay him. That's Jeremiah 22. But Jeremiah 23, right after that, tells us something amazing. It tells us of the king that we have and his name's Jesus. I point that way because I I picture a timeline here of bad kings, bad kings, bad kings. And finally, boom, good king Jesus. This is what it says in Jeremiah 23, the promise that will be fulfilled. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 1, it says this. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of Israel... Concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and you've driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. This, he's describing what we've just t- talked about. These kings are terrible and everybody's all over the place. Then, verse 3. This is so good. Jeremiah 23, 3. This, then, here's where it gets really good. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries for where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to the fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Verse 5, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, capital B, this is Jesus, this is the prophecy. You don't have to feel despair anymore, Israel. I am going to be faithful to 2 Samuel 7. A promised king is going to come. And he says in verse 5, I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in his land. In his days, Judah will be saved. What an amazing promise. And Israel will dwell securely. And here it is. And this is the name by which we'll be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Who is that Lord of righteousness? His name is Jesus Christ. King Jesus. Next week I'm going to preach a whole sermon 
on who Jesus King is from the triumphal entry of all the facets of the deity or the the kingship of Jesus. Eight different things. That's next week. I'm not going to give it away. But right now, here we see that Jesus is the truer and better king of all the kings of first and second kings. I want to conclude with one quote from Tony Morita. He says, our king has come. Living the life we could not live, dying the death we should have died, rising from the dead, defeating our ultimate enemies. And our king is coming again. We shall be with him forever. Right now, we're in between the times. Let's not lose heart as we wait for the day in which King Jesus returns to establish his eternal shalom-filled kingdom. We need a better king. And his name is Jesus. And praise God, we have one. Now, to the only king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this book of First and Second Kings that points us to the fact that we need a better king and you have given him to us and his name is Jesus. Thank you so much for the prophecy of Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6 where you promise the righteous branch of David and say that he will be a king and he will deal wisely with us and that he is our righteousness. And so I pray for anyone here that doesn't know Jesus that they would confess their sin, they would receive the forgiveness of Christ and that the Lord's righteousness would be their righteousness and they would be yours and that Jesus wouldn't be an addendum to their already happy life. Instead, Jesus, for me and for all of us, would be our whole life. Lord, thank you for King Jesus, who is our righteousness. Be with us now as we worship through song. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.